Father in heaven, we're going to study your book. And as we open the Bible today, we pray that the spirit that inspired the Bible would enter into our hearts. The spirit that inspired the word of God would speak to our souls. We pray that this would be more than a humanistic lecture, more than a learning experience, but it would be an experience in which the word of God burns in our hearts and fills our lives and changes our lives. In Christ's name, amen. In the 1840s, there were social, political, scientific, and religious revolutions that would ultimately change the world. And to understand the three angels' messages, it becomes imperative that we understand the social, the political, the psychological, and the religious trends of that day. In the 1840s, Charles Darwin, in 1842, published his first draft of The Origin of the Species. The Origin of the Species, which dealt with the evolutionary philosophy, would change the world. It would change pol politics. It would change philosophy. It would change psychology, and it would change religion. In 1844, what year, everybody? 1844, Charles Darwin published his first essay of The Origin of Species. Now, the book wasn't published until 1859. When Darwin published The Origin of the Species, it basically reduced dramatically human beings' belief in the Bible and in the Word of God. The Origin of the Species shared this revolutionary thought, which was revolutionary in that day, although not new, which I'll show you in the lecture. It introduced the thought that human beings were not created by an all-powerful God, that rather they evolved from lower forms of life, from the primeval sources of the sea, ultimately to single-celled amoeba, ultimately to plant life and human life. He ruled out the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And so that rocked the world. It dehumanized human beings. It took away the idea of a personal God as creator. Now at the same time that that was developing historically, there was another major movement in the world. The Communist Manifesto was published in 1848. Do you think it is any accident that the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx, Frederick Engels, is published in 1848, that The Origin of the Species is published in 1859? Do you think that is any accident? The devil knew that an end-time message would be going to the world. He knew that God would raise up a divine movement of destiny in 1844 to herald the message of the three angels. And so the devil was doing everything he could politically. He was doing everything he could intellectually. He was doing everything he could with the publishing of The Origin of the Species in 1859, first draft, 1844, doing everything he could with the publishing of the Communist Manifesto in 1848, now, there were religious movements that were developing at the same time. Joseph Smith of the Mormons in the 1840s, which had become the largest homegrown American religion with Mormonism, the Latter-day Saints. That was developing in the 1840s. 
You had Christian science with Mary Baker Eddy developing in the 1840s. By the time you come to the late 19th century, Jehovah Witnesses are developing. So the devil knows that he's going to try to deceive humanity in every possible way he can so that as Adventism is growing, you have political movements, psychological movements, scientific movements, and religious movements that are, do that are beginning to, to develop. Now, to understand Revelation chapter 14, it becomes necessary to understand its context in the book of Revelation. So I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to Revelation, the first chapter. Revelation, the first chapter. The book of Revelation is divided into two major parts, the first 12 chapters and the last 10 chapters. Revelation has 22 chapters. The first 12 chapters of the book of Revelation start with an introduction to Revelation 1, then you go through the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets. They are really a historical overview that take you to Revelation 12, and Revelation 12 gives you four specific snapshots that summarize the great controversy down through the ages. That Revelation 12 is the hinge upon which the entire book of Revelation turns, and that leads you to Revelation 13 to 22, which deal with primarily end events. But we're looking at Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of whom? The revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. So if you study the book of Revelation, and for you it's more about beasts and strange images You've missed the point of the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is mentioned as the Lamb of God 28 times. Seven in the book of Revelation is a number of perfection. Four is a number of universality. Four times seven, Jesus the Lamb of God, the perfect universal Savior for all mankind. Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servants John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to the things which he saw. So this is the revelation of Jesus. Where did Jesus get the revelation from? Where did he get it from? God. God gave it to Jesus. Who did Jesus give it to? The angel. And what did the angel do with it? Gave it to John. What did John do with it? He wrote it down in a book. And you and I open that book and we read it. When we read the book of Revelation, our hands tremble with the sense of sacredness because we sense that this message comes from the heart of God. It comes from God to Jesus. It comes from Jesus to the angel. And the angel flies and gives it to John, exiled on the island of Patmos. And John writes it down, and you and I take it in our hands today. We have a straight line of prophetic truth that comes from the heart of God. Would you say that the book of Revelation is a serious message? Would you? If you were the devil, what would you do if you knew that God gave an end-time message to Jesus, to the angel, to John, what would you do? You'd tell people that this book is a closed book, right? You'd tell people that this book could not be understood. You'd tell people that it's too strange to understand and too complicated because it comes from the heart of God. 
Now, the heart of the book of Revelation are these messages that we call the three angels' messages. And we're taking our Bible and turning to Revelation, the 14th chapter. Now, Revelation 14 is divided into three parts. And to understand the center part of the book of Revelation, Revelation 14, it's necessary to understand what precedes and what comes after it. The first five verses in Revelation 14 speak of a people standing on the sea of glass, a people redeemed. Now, Eastern thought is always different than Western thought. Western thought is linear in its progression. So in Western thought, we think of an introduction, the main body, and a conclusion. That's how Western thought thinks. We think progressively on a timeline. We think from end to beginning. Eastern thought thinks differently. It thinks you put the ending first. And so in Revelation chapter 14, you first have the redeemed people called the 144,000 that stand on the sea of glass that follow the Lamb wherever they go. That's Revelation 14, 1 to 5. In Revelation 14, 6 to 12, you have the message that prepares that people called the three angels' messages. That's the message we're going to study. In Revelation 14, 13 to 20, you have the event for which they are prepared. So there are three things in Revelation 14 to keep in mind. The people, the message, and the event. What are they, everybody? The people, the message, and the event. The message prepares the people to stand on the sea of glass for the event of the second coming of Christ. Now, with that background, it's important to understand that Seventh-day Adventists find their unique prophetic identity outlined in Revelation 14, 6 to 12. It's here that we find our passion to proclaim the gospel to the world. Let's read together from the screen these messages and then come back and take them phrase by phrase and unpack the pregnancy of their meaning. Revelation 14, 6 to 12, reading together. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. That's the first angel's message. That's enough for now, and we'll study the second and third as we go through the morning. Now, Ellen White makes this remarkable statement regarding this message. So here's a basic question. Is the three angels' message an antiquated message of a bygone 19th century generation that Adventism needs to grow out of? Is, is the three angels' message part of some kind of old legalistic thinking, or is it at the very heart of the gospel? Does the three angels' message speak with relevant terms to the, a contemporary 21st century society? One of the things I hope to do in this class with you this morning 
is look at some of the issues that the world is facing today and show you that the three angels' messages is tailor-made for this generation. I want to look at it with you from new eyes, taking the prophetic message of truth and expanding it. I read a statement in the writings of Ellen White this week that I had not read before. It's a manuscript statement in which she says, and I'll read it to you a little later after we read this statement, that in the final generation, Seventh-day Adventists will see new truths in Revelation 14 and will see it in a broader way. Now, I need to remind you that new truth never obviates old truth. When somebody says to you, I've discovered new truth, and that does away with that platform of faith that has been established and wrought out in Bible study by Adventist pioneers, you run from that as fast as you can. You run from that thing as fast as you can. But God will always give an expansion of truth. He'll always give new insights to each generation where new truth becomes more relevant to that generation. We're going to look at, at the platform, the foundation this morning of the three angels' message, but we're going to expand that and look at that as how it relates to some of the contemporary issues of our generation. Now, here's what Ellen White said. In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning message to the perishing world. Now look, has the last warning message been given in its fullness yet? Is it being given now? Sure it is. So if we've been entrusted with the last warning message to a perishing world, this is not some bygone message of another generation that we have to graduate out of. On them is shining wonderful light from the Word of God. They have been given a work of most solemn importance. What is that? The proclamation of the first second, and third angel's messages. There is no other work. What does that mean, there's no other work? Uh, there's no other, this is it, you got it. There's no other work of so what? Great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. Is there anybody else preaching the three angels' messages other than Seventh-day Adventists? I remember a wonderful story that HMS Richards told. He was visiting Salt Lake City and had a guide who was a Mormon guide, and they came to the Mormon temple. And they looked up there, and the Mormon guide pointed to the angel Moroni, who's on the top of that temple, the, you know, the golden angel. And Richard just stepped back, and he said to the guide, where are the other two angels? <laughs> the guide was quite baffled at Richard's comment and didn't know what he meant. But Seventh-day Adventists are not another denomination. They've been raised up by God in a unique prophetic movement to prepare a world for the soon coming of Jesus in heralding these messages of the three angels. Now, if you have your study guide, and I hope you do, take it and turn here to the back part of the first page. It'll be actually the second page, back part of the first page of your study guide. There's a fascinating statement made by Winston Churchill. It's at the top. Winston Churchill makes this interesting statement. And it really is germane when it comes to the three angels' messages. Churchill says this, It is not enough to have lived. We must be determined to have lived for something. 
I didn't put this statement in your notes, but I have it in mine. The great Christian philosopher who, who resisted communism, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, wrote this. The mystery of human existence lies not in just staying alive, but in finding something to live for. I love it. The mystery of human existence is not simply staying alive. It's having something to live for. There is nothing grander, nothing greater than knowing that you're part of a prophetic movement raised up by God to herald in the second coming of Christ. Helen Keller put it this way, true happiness is not attained through self-gratification, but through fidelity to a worthy purpose. When you discover the reason for a living, it's no accident that you were born in this generation. You could have been born 100 years ago, 2,000 years ago, but you were born at this time in the prophetic divine drama of destiny, came on the stage known by God to be part of a last day prophetic movement. There can be nothing as thrilling, nothing more exciting than knowing that we're part of this divine movement of God. Now, the three angels' messages lift us from the narrowness of the claustrophobic phobic confines of our own self-inflated importance, and they focus us on this enduring purpose for a living. I want you to look down at this fascinating statement at the bottom of the page in page two. Fascinating statement. It says, the 14th chapter, the 14th chapter, and I, you have it there in the bold print, and this statement really fascinated me. The 14th chapter of Revelation is a chapter of deepest interest. This scripture, and this is the sentence, really interesting, will soon be understood in all its bearings. In other words, what Ellen White is saying is that even after 1844, there's something broader, deeper, greater to understand in the three angels' messages, that it's a message we need to continue to study uh, constantly and compare it with scripture. This scripture will soon be understood in all its bearings. The messages given to John the Revelator will be repeated with distinct utterance. So there are two aspects of this statement. Number one, the three angels' messages that our early Adventist pioneers taught, they will provide the foundation for a larger, fuller understanding in the light of the end time. Secondly, that this message will be proclaimed with greater power. You're going over to page three. We're going to look at the three angels' messages in their sequence. Now, verse 6 is not some preamble to the message. It's the very heart of it. Notice, Revelation 14, 6 and 7. I have it on the screen. And then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So we want to look at those two expressions, the everlasting gospel. The everlasting gospel is not a preamble to the three angels' messages. It's not an add-on to the three angels' messages. The everlasting gospel is at the heart of what these messages are all about. So it says, I saw another angel fly in heaven with the everlasting gospel. Now notice three things about this message. First, it's urgent. The angel flies in the middle of heaven. He does not float. Second, the gospel is eternal. It's an eternal message. Now, for something to be eternal, it needs two qualities. It needs to be universal in time, eternal in time, and universal in application. So if something is really eternal, it has to be ageless. It has to apply to every generation if it's eternal. 
It can't be for one generation. Secondly, it has to be universal. It has to be able to speak to every ethnic group, every culture, every uh, nation. So the message is an urgent message, this three angels message. It's an eternal message, and certainly it is a universal message. Now the phrase speaks of the everlasting gospel. We look at two words, the everlasting gospel. And the first question we raise is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Paul answers that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I have it there in your notes. You can do some writing, 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul answers what the gospel is. So this is the message of the everlasting gospel. Of all people, Seventh-day Adventists ought to be at the foremost of lifting up Christ before the world in the context of these three angels' messages. We're looking at 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. And here Paul defines the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we begin reading, and I'll read verse 1 to 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached in you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He's now defining the gospel, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So what is the gospel? It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Let's probe that a little more. What is the gospel? It's the revelation of the Christ who dies on the cross and who lives in the sanctuary above. It is the revelation of Jesus as the dying lamb and the living priest. What is the gospel? It is the revelation of a Christ that delivers us from the guilt of sin and the grip of sin. Any so-called gospel that deals merely with deliverance from sin's condemnation, but not sin's grip, is not the fullness of the gospel. The apostle Paul defines the gospel clearly for us, as the death and resurrection of Christ. Christ dying on the cross is the gospel. Christ's ministry in the sanctuary above is the gospel. The gospel is the incredible good news that through Jesus, the guilt of sin can be gone, and through Jesus, the grip of sin can be released. The gospel is the good news that through Jesus, Sin's penalty is eradicated on the cross. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, who walk after the, the Spirit and not after the flesh. So we're delivered from the condemnation of the law, but we're also delivered from the dominion and bondage of sin. So the gospel is the fullness of the gospel, understood by Seventh-day Adventists is unique, it is not only that we're delivered from the guilt of sin, but it's rather that the dominion of sin is broken. The bondage of sin is broken. Not only was crucif Christ crucified for us, but we are crucified with him. Paul defines the gospel. Galatians chapter 2. 
What is this unique end-time gospel that's to go to the ends of the earth? It is that Christ will forgive you, that Christ will pardon you, that your condemnation is gone, but that you can live a new life in Christ. You no longer need to be in bondage. This is the essence of the gospel in the light of the three angels' messages that leads a people to be victorious in the last days of earth's history and stand before the throne of God. Revelation. Yeah, Revelation. I get so excited, I don't know what book I'm in. <laughs> Somebody said, Mark, you've been preaching this for 53 years and you're still excited about it. I'm more excited about it now than when I started 50 years ago because I know more now. Where was I going anyway? Revel Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians 2, verse 20. All right. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Is that the gospel? Is that the gospel? I've been crucified with whom? Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Don't you love that? He loved me. He loved me. When Jesus died on the cross with nails through his hands and blood running down his wrists and a crown of thorns upon his head, it was not the pain of the nails that killed him, but Jesus hung on that cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because sin was so great that it crushed out the life of the Son of God. And Jesus could not see himself coming through the portals of the tomb according to the book Desire of Ages. And as he hung there, Jesus experienced the death that all humanity will experience. He experienced the second death, not merely the first death, because if Jesus only experienced the first death, there is no salvation for you and me. So when Jesus hung on the cross, he not only experienced the death of a sinner, he experienced death for all sin. So I don't know if you can imagine this, and you can't, and neither can I, and that's why we're going to be studying the plan of salvation throughout eternity. The aggregated, magnified pain and suffering of every person lost in hell, and every person that would have been lost in hell, and all of that Jesus bore in the pain and agony of his body when he hung on the cross of Calvary. All of that suffering that takes place with weeping and gnashing of teeth and all of that anguish and pain, that's why in Hebrews 2 verse 8 it says he tasted death for every man. So as he hung there, he experienced that on the cross of Calvary. And that's why Paul says he loved me. There is no love like this in the universe. Buddhism does not know this love. Islam does not know this love. Hinduism does not know it. Christianity is unique. What is the gospel? It's understanding his love on Calvary that breaks our hearts, that leads us to trust him completely, to do a work in our lives where we can reflect his image and reveal his character to a waiting world and a watching universe. Here, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So the everlasting gospel is everlasting because it comes from the heart of God. The gospel and the salvation of Christ on the cross was not an afterthought. 
Desire of Ages, page 22. The plan of redemption was not an afterthought, a plan formulated after the fall of Adam. It was a revelation of the mystery which has been kept in silence through times eternal. It was an unfolding of the principles that from eternal ages have been the foundation of God's throne. So here in the gospel, the gospel flows from the heart of God. And when God created the human race, Adam, when he created Adam and Eve, before that in the far reaches of eternity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit met. Because God was not caught by surprise when Adam and Eve sinned. And the gospel comes from the heart of God, a heart of grace, a heart of mercy, a heart of love. And God and the Father and the Son, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there in heaven, designed the plan of salvation. And Christ stepped forth, the one who was eternal with the Father, and said, I will come and pay the ransom price and model the life that they should have lived Jesus, according to Revelation 13, 8, is the what? Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, how does this message of the everlasting gospel speak to the 21st century? Suicide is on the rise in the 21st century. It is becoming very rapidly the number one cause of death for young people 15 to 31 years old. In addition to that, over $1 billion, well over, of depressants will be sold in pharmaceutical drugs for depression in the United States this year. Self-worth is at an all-time low in our society. Men and women walk around depressed and discouraged. They say, where do I find my worth? Where do I find my value? to a generation starved for genuine, authentic love, when divorce is commonplace and sexual promiscuity flows like water through our land. The, the gospel speaks of a God of unconditional love who go to any length to redeem us because he wants us with him forever. The gospel, the three angels' message, is a message for this generation that lifts us from the guttermost to the uttermost. It takes us from the depths of despair to the delights of discipleship. It takes us from the mud, wallowing in the mud. Get your head out of the mud. You're a son and daughter of God, redeemed by the grace of Christ. We can walk through the world with a message of hope because the first angel says, I saw another angel flying in the middle of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those that dwell on the earth, for every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Grace pardons our past. Grace empowers our present. Grace provides hope for our future. In Christ, we're delivered from sin's penalty and power, and one day soon, we're going to be delivered from sin's presence. This is the hope-filled, grace-filled message of the Bible's last book, Revelation. The eternal gospel speaks not only of the past and present, it speaks, it's the basis of a future with hope. It speaks of living eternally with the one whose heart is aching to be with us forever. That's the everlasting gospel. Now notice, what did it say in Revelation 14, verse 7? I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the what? Everlasting gospel. To preach to whom? Those that dwell on the earth. To every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Look, here is a message so grand, so large, so great, so comprehensive that it's all-consuming. This commission demands our best efforts and requires our total commitment. 
It leads us from a preoccupation with our own self-interest to a passion for Christ's service. When young people get this, when they see that they are a unique generation, that life is no accident, that they have been raised up by God to share his love. If they're a computer expert, they're sharing his love in the context of their computer skills and sharing this love with the people around them. If they're a nurse in the hospital, I've been raised up by God to work in this hospital. A mechanic, like William Carey, the shoe cobbler, said, I cobble shoes to pay expenses, but soul winning is my business. See, that's what ASI is all about, isn't it? See, once you understand this, once young people understand this, the trinkets of this world do not have attraction to them. You don't want to wait in some kiddie's waiting pool when you can go diving for pearls. You don't, you don't want to wait in some kiddie's waiting pool picking up little pennies where you can dive for pearls. When, when young people understand the breadth of this, the bigness of this, the greatness of this, they give their all to it. In his book, The Quest for More, Paul David Tripp, Tripp writes this. I love it. Human beings were created to be part of something bigger than their own lives. Sin causes us to shrink our lives down to the size of our lives. The grace of Christ is given to rescue us from the claustrophobic confines of our own little self-focused kingdom and frees us to live for the great eternal purposes and satisfying delights of the kingdom of God. We live in a culture that has institutionalized self-focus and personal entitlement. If you look around, it's very clear that we need to be rescued from ourselves. Things like debt, addiction, obesity, divorce are the fruits of a culture of self-focus where we look for meaning where meaning cannot be found. There's freedom to be found in living for something bigger than yourself. Ultimately, it means living for the glory of God and the success of his agenda for the world he made. See, that's, that's what the three angels' messages are all about. They lift you from this claustrophobic, self-myopic, narrow confines of your life. They give you something much bigger, greater to live for. We're part of something bigger, grander. Part of God's plan for the finishing of his work in this world. There's nothing more inspiring, more fulfilling, more rewarding than being part of a divine movement providentially raised up by God to accomplish a task far bigger, larger than any one human being could ever accomplish on their own. That's why it's so exciting to be a Seventh-day Adventist. There's no time to check out. There's no time to walk away. God is leading a prophetic movement, a corporate whole around the world to herald his message of eternal truth to prepare a world for his coming. That's what Matthew 24, verse 14 says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. Then the end will come. Adventists have been raised up as that movement to prepare a world for the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now our message goes on in verse 7. It says, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come. I want you to take your study notes and turn over here to the second, to where it says the three angels' message in God's end time mission. We've gone over that. You're looking at point three. This would be on page one, two, three, four, or the back of the second sheet. I want to look for a little bit at the three angels' message in humanism. And talk a little bit about humanism and the three angels' messages and uh, give you a little background of this idea 
of what it means to, to fear God. What is, what's indeed fearing God? And it's really interesting when you look at it. The word fear there is the Greek word phoebo. Now it's used here not in the sense of being afraid of God, but in the sense of reverence, awe, and respect. It conveys the thought of absolute loyalty to his will and to God and surrender to his will. See, phoebo has to do with a way of thinking. It has to do with this way of thinking. That mentally, so it's not this idea of fearing and being afraid. Now sometimes we translate that as awe or respect of God. It's that, but it's much more. The word phoebo in Greek is a much broader word than that. It has to do with reverential awe that leads me to a mindset that is submissive of my will to God. Often in a Greek word, it's hard to capture it in a single expression because Greek is a much more richer. So when we read the expression fear God, we're talking about this sense of reverential awe that leads us to obedience to his will. We're, we're talking about fearing God, which is an attitude of mind that takes God seriously. In other words, a life that is God-centered rather than self-centered. Now, God raises up this first angel's message at a time of, of humanism. Now, what is humanism? Let me read you the definition of humanism. Because in 1840s, when you have the evolutionary hypothesis developing in 1842, 44, 59, when all that's developing, and when Karl Marx is uh, publishing his, uh, or his uh, Communist Manifesto, you know, you're, you're familiar with Marx's statement where Marx says religion is the opiate of the people, but you might not be familiar with where Marx says in Communist Manifesto that um, religion is the soul for the soulless. That's how he defines religion. He says the soul for the soulless. In other words, Marx says that, um, that, 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 that if you don't have any, anything to live for, you, you go to religion. And he says, I have something to live for, and that's developing the communist state. It's developing an uh, a industrial military complex that will dominate the world. Um, so at the same time in the 1840s, uh, when you have evolution developing, that is very self-centered, very man-centered. When you have communism developing, that's man-centered. God sends a message out that is God-centered. Now, here's humanism. Let me define it. Human, humanism is an outlook or a system of thought attaching prime importance to the human rather than the divine or supernatural matters. Humanistic beliefs stress the potential value and the goodness of human beings. They emphasize the common human needs and seek solely rational ways to solve human problems. Now you say, why did you read that? Is it possible that humanistic thinking could enter into the Adventist church? Is that possible? Is it possible that when we wrestle with issues, that we look at them from a humanistic standpoint, and we allow social culture to mold the mind and the shape in the policies of the church in some ways. Could, could that ever happen, do you think? Look, the three angels' message leads you from that. It says, fear God. And if you fear God, you have a reverential submission to God, and you accept the word of God, and the word of God becomes your supreme authority. So the, when this first angel's message, when it says, fear God, 
that has to do with, with acknowledging the authority of God and acknowledging the word of God as the very basis of your faith in life. So that's what fearing God is all about. It's you and I coming to God and on our knees saying, God, I give you my life. God, I want to be in submissive authority to you. God, whatever pleases you, I want to do. And God, I accept the authority of your word as supreme in my life. I want my mind saturated by your word. I want my life filled with your word. I want to live out the principles of your word. Now, remember the great controversy in heaven. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13 and 14. Isaiah says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. See, it's a battle for the throne. He, wasn't he already in heaven? Yes, but he wanted a higher place. I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. What happens from the throne? From the throne, the king rules. So Satan, Lucifer in heaven, wanted to exalt his rulership. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. What does that mean? The mount of congregation in the sides of the north was Mount Sinai. That was the mount of the congregation, sides of the north from the camp of Israel. That's where God gave the law. Lucifer did not want to obey the law. He wanted to give the law. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll be like the Most High. What was the challenge that Satan gave God in heaven? It was a challenge over authority. It was a challenge over authority. One of the greatest challenges that the Seventh-day Adventist Church will face in the future is a challenge over the authority of God's word. Will we continue to be a Bible-based people accepting the authority of God's word for every action? So this is the part of the first angel's message. When secular values have made self the center, heaven's appeal is to turn from the tyranny of self-centeredness, from the bondage of self-inflated importance to place God and his word at the center of our lives. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 33, you can see it here in your notes. If you turn there in your, in your notes, you'll notice this. Page 4, bottom. Page 4, you're looking at point number 4, and you'll notice it, or rather point 3, Matthew 6, verse 33. I'm jumping back and forth between the screen, my notes, and your notes. All right, Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek you first the kingdom of what? God and his righteousness. In other words, fear God. Place him first in your thinking, and all these things will be added unto you. Colossians 3, verse 2. What does it say? 1 and 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things where? On the earth. So the great appeal of fear God is a submissive attitude where I seek God and my mind is fixed upon him. Now notice it says, fear God, and then what's the next phrase? Give glory to him. Now this is interesting. Fear God speaks of our attitudes. Giving glory to God speaks of our actions. Fear God has to do with how we think. Giving glory to God has to do with what we do. Fear God has to do with our inner commitment, the submissiveness of our mind. Giving glory to God has to do with a lifestyle that honors God. If you study the expression, giving glory to God through the entire Old and New Testament, this is what you discover. That giving glory to God has to do with giving God the honor that is rightfully his. 
And that giving glory to God has to do with your lifestyle. It has to do with honoring God in each decision you make in your life. So giving glory to God has to do with what I view on television, if I view television. It has to do with what I view on the internet, if I view the internet. It has to do with what I put into my mind. It has to, honoring God and giving glory to God has to do with the health message, what I put into my bodies. So God will have a last time, last day generation that understands the gospel. Grace has transformed them and grace has empowered them. They will go out to the ends of the earth to proclaim this everlasting gospel, something much bigger than they are. They will fear God in giving him submission in their lives in reverential obedience and placing his authority before any other authority. They will glorify God in every aspect of their lives. I'd like you to take your Bible, please, and turn here to three passages. First, Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and verse 20. We're looking there at the passage. 1 Corinthians 6. Acts, Romans, Corinthians. Verse 19 and 20. Here the Bible says, What, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, which you have from God, and you're not your own? See, in the Bible there are three great temples. There's the sanctuary in the Old Testament. The sanctuary in the Old Testament was the dwelling place of God. There's the sanctuary in the New Testament, which is the literal sanctuary which is up in heaven, the dwelling place of God. But also, you and I are a sanctuary. You and I are a temple where the Spirit of God longs to dwell. And so Paul says, don't you know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you? You have of God, you're not of your own. Verse 20, you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. So giving glory to God in the way we live is part of the three angels' message. Giving glory to God in what we look at, giving glory to God in what we eat and drink is part of the three angels' message. Now go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. How does this relate to an end-time generation? To an end-time generation that is interested in their health. To an end-time generation, there's a health revolution, particularly in the Western world. There's a resurgence of interest in exercise, a resurgence of interest in a healthy eating. There's a resurgence of, of interest in helping to prevent the killer diseases, the degenerative diseases of the 21st century. Seventh-day Adventists understand something fuller and broader than the traditional teachings on health. We understand that our body is the temple of God. Our motivation is not simply to live seven or eight, ten or twelve years longer. Our motivation is to have blood that flows through our veins and oxygenates our brain so that we can think the thoughts of God. Our motivation is to give glory to God in every area of our life. First Thessalonians 5, you're looking at verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, see that's your mental faculties, that's your attitude, 
Your soul, that's the spiritual faculties. Your body, that's the physical faculties. So here Paul covers, covers them all. Your soul, your, your spirit, your soul, be preserved blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Praise God. We come. See, Adventists are different. We don't simply preach, give up meat. We don't simply preach, go out and take exercise. We talk about the holistic life. We talk about comprehensive health. We talk about a message to prepare people for the coming of Jesus, physically, mentally, and spiritually. You know, a number of years ago, when the five-day plans to stop smoking came out, it was in 19, early 1960s, I was a young preacher in Hartford, Connecticut, and we ran about 25-day plans to stop smoking in a four-year period. We'd run about four or five programs a year. And uh, we were thrilled because 84% of our people uh, quit smoking. And I was touting those statistics all over the place. And uh, then the Connecticut Department of Health did a study on our work, and they came to talk to us about it. And they said, you know, we did a study on recidivism, and recidivism is how many people quit and they go back. And uh, they said, you know, your results are not 84% that you guys are touting. They're about 24%. I was absolutely stunned. Now, in those years, we were told, don't pray in the five-day plan. Don't introduce any spiritual principles. And I understood right away as a young preacher that you can help people overcome habits in their life. And those who are naturally strong-willed may hang on for a while, but the majority of people are not going to do it. And unless you provide people with a faith base where the living Christ enters their life and empowers them, most likely they're going to go back to their previous habits. That's where Seventh-day Adventists are unique. That's where the three angels' messages speaks to this generation. We speak not only of a change of lifestyle habits. What's, we speak of the Christ who's enabled to empower men and women to live the life that he calls them to live. So we look there. Revelation chapter 14. Fearing God speaks of your attitude. Again, giving glory to God speaks of what, everybody? Your actions. Fearing God has to do, speak to with what? How we do what? Think. Giving glory to God has to speak to how we do. Fearing God has to speak of an inner commitment. Giving glory to God speaks of our lifestyle. 1 Corinthians 10.31 also says, whatever you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So Seventh-day Adventists have a unique health message that is part of this three angels' message. Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has done what? Come. Now notice what this says. Does it say the hour of our judgment has come? In the great controversy between good and evil, God is on trial before the universe. And when the clock struck the hour in 1844, the hour of God's judgment came. What does that mean, the hour of God's judgment has come? And how do we play in to this very judgment hour? The hour of God's judgment is the hour that God is on trial before the whole universe. Before the second coming of Christ, God's name will be exalted and honored in the way he's dealt with the problem of evil. On the cross, Christ's love was manifest in its fullest, largest dimensions. 
but how that love plays out in every life. Is God fair and God, is God just in those that are lost and those that are saved? Has God done everything he can to save every human being? So according to Daniel 7, take your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 7. Tens of thousands press in around the eternal throne of God. This intergalactic struggle is coming to an end. This Star Wars controversy will come to an end. This controversy is more thrilling, more captivating than any Hollywood drama. Beings from unfallen worlds press in to the sanctuary. Angels press in. Here you have Daniel looks up and he says, Daniel 7 verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place. The thrones is a movable throne. Jesus goes from the holy to the most holy place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. The books were open. Now notice the majesty of this. Thousands, thousands ministered. Thousand times ten thousand. Here is an event that captures the attention of the entire universe. Can anything be more important? Now what? Verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. So here you have movement in the sanctuary. Jesus comes to where the Father is. You see it in the text. He comes to the most holy place there. Then to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all people's nations should serve him, that his kingdom should not pass away. See, it's a battle for the kingdom. Who is worthy to rule? And in the judgment, it is revealed that Jesus Christ is worthy to rule. And in the judgment, Jesus steps forth and says, could I have done anything else to save this man? Could I have done anything else to save this woman? Is there anything greater than the cross, anything greater than my love? I send my Holy Spirit to their heart to woo them. Every person born into this world, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, has eternity put in their heart. According to John chapter 1, verse 7 to 9, Christ is the light that lights every man born into this world. So every human being born, the Holy Spirit's in their heart. The Holy Spirit's guiding them to right and truth. In every life, God is giving people an opportunity to know him, to serve him, to love him. So in the final judgment, this is what we see. Christ stepping forth and before the whole universe. See, human beings are so valuable. Human beings are so precious to God. You and I were not created. We, we were not fashioned on some photocopy machine. When the genes and chromosomes came together to form the unique biological structure, your personality, God threw away the pattern. There's nobody else like you in the universe. See, you're not some genetic accident. You're not some anomaly. And the judgment, see, when you look at the three angels' message, they reveal the worth of every human being. They reveal the gospel. Christ died for us. Christ lives for us. They reveal that we are created by God. We'll go to creation shortly. They reveal in the judgment that all the universe pauses over your case. You are so important, so valuable. All the universe looks in. And when your name comes up in judgment, Jesus steps forth. And he said, could I have done anything else? 
Could I have done anything else for Mark Finley? Could I have done anything else? When he was born, I sent my Holy Spirit to his heart. All his life, I, I, I sent my spirit to woo him. I sent people to him to share literature and the word of God. I died on the cross for him. Could I have done anything more? And the universe says, no, you could do nothing more. Worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive honor and blessing and power. At the end of the judgment, Jesus will be revealed as perfectly loving because Lucifer claimed that God was unfair, unjust. He was author authoritative dictator and a wrathful tyrant. That's what Lucifer claimed. And here, it's revealed in the judgment that Christ is fair. Now, let me tell you why the judgment is good news for you. Take your Bible, look at Daniel chapter 7. If you haven't seen this, it's going to encourage your heart. Daniel 7, verse 21 and 22. I was watching, Daniel says, the same horn. That's the little horn power. What is the essence of the little horn power? The essence of the little horn power is humanism. It's self-inflated importance. It is denying the authority of the Word of God. And the issue in the change of the Sabbath is not merely the change of the Sabbath. It's something much more. It is taking the authority of man and exalting it over the authority of God. And that's the essence of blasphemy. So blasphemy is when you take the authority of man and you heighten that above the authority of God. So I was watching, the same horn was making war with the saints, the little horn power. So the great controversy at its essence is whose authority do you accept? Whose authority do you accept? I was at, and see the devil right now is preparing the ground to have Seventh-day Adventists accept the authority of the beast by getting them to, if, if he can get them to reject the authority of the Word of God, if he can shape Adventism in some type of cultural, social religion, rather than a Bible-believing religion that believes we have a prophetic movement of destiny to prepare a world for the coming of Christ. So anyway, more on that later. I was watching the same horn, was making war with the saints and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came. Who's the Ancient of Days? God the Father. And judgment was made, read the next few fra phrases with me, in what? in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Verse 22. No, verse 27. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Wow. Judgment was made, what does Scripture say, everybody? In favor of the saints of God. The judgment is not against you, it's for you. And Jesus stands in the judgment in your behalf. As my friend George Vandeman used to tell me, Mark, when I look at myself, there's no way I can be saved. But when I look at Jesus, there's no way I can be lost. Yeah. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Yeah. The judgment is passed in favor of the saints. When individual names come up in judgment, we become exhibit A's of God's goodness, grace, and his mercy. Those people that turn their back on his love and spurn his grace, that'll be revealed. And, judge, and the, why does the Bible say judgment is based on works? How else is going to God based on judgment? Our faith is so good it works. <laughs> see, our, our faith is so good that it, see, the faith of Jesus living in our hearts glorifies God through our lives, and that glory is revealed in the judgment. Now, the judgment reveals God's character of self-sacrificing love in contrast to Satan's selfish ambition. Revelation 14.7 is a divine commentary on Daniel 7, verse 13, 14, 26, and 27. Before a waiting world and a watching universe, God reveals in heaven's eternal judgment that he's done everything, absolutely everything possible to save all humanity. Judgment is passed in favor of the saints. Now, in the judgment, all wrongs are going to be made right. Righteousness is going to triumph over evil. Just today, 
I read in the newspaper the story, the story of a man, um, and uh, this man was tried for a crime in Florida that he never committed. There was a murder that took place, and a cab driver was shot in the head, and the cab driver ultimately lived, but this man was tried and spent 10 years in prison for attempted murder and assault. And just yesterday, the courts came forth and the police department of that city came forth and said, we found the real killer. Because the real killer had come forth after 10 years and when he committed the crime 10 years ago, he admitted it to his close friends. And he said, I can't live with myself any longer because a man was put in prison. He's been in prison for 10 years. Has anything ever happened to you that has been unjust? Has anything ever happened to you that um, is totally unfair? See, one of the issues we deal with in life is this. Why at times is life so unfair? Why do catastrophes happen in life that are totally unexplainable? Why do innocent people at times get put in prison? Why do godly people have tragic accidents that take their lives? Why do good people sometimes get, um, because of prejudice, get made redundant on their jobs? Why does a faithful wife at times have a husband that leaves her for another woman? Why does a godly Christian woman get her face beat in by some man who comes home, for her husband who comes home drunk and she has a bloody nose? You know, you ask all those questions. Why, why, why? Sometimes in this life there are not good answers. But in the judgment, every wrong will be set right. In the judgment, for the proportion that we have suffered in eternity, we'll have that proportion of joy. In the judgment, we will discover that our deepest valleys were the times that God was with us in the closest ways. God does not promise life will be fair, but what he does promise is that, life will be, that, that he'll be with us in all of its unfairness. That's what he promises. See, the three angels' messages are tailor-made for this generation. They speak of self-worth in a God that loves us so much that he wants us in heaven with him, the everlasting gospel. They speak of a purpose much bigger than we are, the, the preparing of a people for the coming of Jesus. They speak of not self-centered, myopic, claustrophobic lack of purpose, but they speak of purpose and meaning and fearing God. They speak of the authority of the Bible. They speak of, of, of bodies and minds and hearts that are totally united to Christ. The three angels' messages speak of a God that's going to make all things right in an in unjust world. Now, it says, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven, earth, sea, and the fountains of waters. Who's the one that made heaven, earth, sea, and the fountains of waters? Who is that? He's the what? What do we call him? We call him the what? The creator. Now look. Here is a message going forth at the time of evolution to worship the creator. What is the symbol of his creative authority? What is that? It's the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath is his symbol of creative authority. So here is a message calling us back 
to the Sabbath. But I want to look at this message in a variety of ways. When, it's called, when, when the message has worshipped the Creator, has the Creator created this planet? Has He created this planet? If we worship the Creator, are we concerned about the environment? Will we needlessly pollute this planet? So do Seventh-day Adventists have a message to environmentalists? We say, yeah, we're concerned about the environment. Now, of all that God has created, what is the epitome, the highest essence of his creation? What is that? Human beings. So if I worship him as creator, am I going to tear down what he created or build up what he created? Am I going to tear down my body or build it up? Can I say I'm worshiping the Creator while I puff a cigarette in this hand and uh, drink alcohol in this hand and I destroy the very body He's created? The essence of worshiping the Creator is giving Him honor and praise through my worship in the way I live. Now let me ask you another thing. If I worship the Creator, will I respect the sanctity of life? Will I respect the unborn? Will I do that? Will I be concerned about issues of the unborn in human life? Will I be concerned about the elderly who even may be incapacitated and cannot contribute to society? If I really understand the three angels' message and their significance, if I really do that, will I say that the, the only human life that has value is human life that can contribute to society? Will that be my attitude? Or will all human life have value? So if I truly understand what it means to worship the Creator, I care for the environment, I respect the sanctity and the dignity of all human life, I respect my body, I respect other people's bodies. See, this three angels' message is far broader because it deals with the very issues that are being debated in political circles in our society today. And Adventists have a unique message for this generation. Now, creation is a powerful concept. It leads us back to the one who made us and gives us security and rest in his love and care. John looks up into heaven and says, Revelation 4, 11, let's read it together. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So every human life exists by what? By God's will. Is that what the text says? For you created all things by your will. You aren't some genetic accident. You're not some collection of skin and bone. You exist because of the creation of God. Now, we're going to turn over here to the next section. Um, I want you to look at creation, the impact of creation. See, I'm going to skip over. I would have loved to talk to you. Man, I just have to tell you about Aristotle. I got to tell you about Aquinas. And I got to tell you about, um, yeah, we're going to look at those three. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna let me do that, right? All right. Aristotle, Augustine, and Aquinas. This is significant for you. All right. Who's Aristotle? And we're talking about creation. Aristotle's a Greek philosopher, right? He lives about in the 4th century before Christ. 
Satan prepared for over 2,000 years to destroy the Sabbath. Satan prepared because he knew the prophecies of Revelation. Aristotle was a scientist and a philosopher. He was the first individual to teach theistic evolution. Aristotle essentially said that God created a primal mass in the sea, and from that life began to evolve. Okay? Now, what do you know about the union of church and state in A.D. 321? There was a Roman emperor by the name of? By the name of? And Constantine united with Roman powers, and in an attempt to unite his empire, they passed the first Sunday law in 321 A.D. The authority of the word was compromised at that time. All right, up until that time, this idea of evolution was just kind of out there. It was not formalized at all. But there was a Catholic theologian by the name of Augustine. Guess when he lived? The fourth century. The exact same time that church and state were uniting. And the question is, how do you undermine the, the Sabbath? You undermine the Sabbath by introducing a concept of quasi-theistic evolution. Theistic evolution is when, when God, when God uh, they have the idea God created the first mass, but then let things evolve over millions of years. Augustine introduces that to Catholicism in the fourth century. At the same time that this church and state are united, because the devil wants to undermine this, and then Thomas Aquinas brings it back into the church in the 13th century in the Reformation. But in every instance that this is brought in, it's to undermine the authority of the Word of God. That's the whole issue here. Now, there are some things about the Sabbath. Turn over to the next page. We're only going to do the first angel's message today. We need to teach a course in the three angels' messages. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing? How many of you would vote if I could come up with an idea that we introduce the three angels' messages into our schools where the kids learned it? How many would vote for that? If you ever hear that happening, are you going to vote for it? Are you going to speak loudly about it? What if I could tell you right now there are some courses being developed for our children, 10-day courses from the first grade to the eighth grade on to high school? What if I could tell you right now that there are lectures being prepared for our pastors on the Three Angels message? Would you be excited about that? Are you going to support it? Okay. You're going to let me go five, year, five minutes more, not five years more. Okay. All right. Okay. So, we're looking at creation. Creation and Sabbath worship. We talked about that. Sabbath worship is the essence of the worshiping of the Creator and accepting His authority. Now look. Next line, I say creation, the Sabbath, self-worth, and the sanctity of life. When you worship on the Sabbath, you are saying all life is sacred. When you worship on the Sabbath, you are coming into oneness with the God that made you. You're acknowledging the authority of God in His creation. When you worship on the Sabbath, you are resting from your works and accepting Christ's works for your salvation. Follow me closely. Sabbath is a symbol of righteousness by faith. 
Sunday is a symbol of righteousness by works. Our Protestant friends have it wrong on this one. How so? When Cain offered his offering of fruits and vegetables, that was an offering of what? Works. Because anytime you substitute human authority for God's word, that is what? Works. Abel did just what God said, and he did it by faith. So when you accept Sabbath, it is a symbol of righteousness by faith that you are resting from your works in Christ's works. You are not trusting in your works. You're resting in his salvation. When you accept Sunday, if you really philosophically understand that, you're accepting a human substitute, a work of man, therefore that is righteous by works. So coming on Sabbath, come knowing you're created by God. Every time you worship on Sabbath, sense your worth in God's sight. Every time you worship on Sabbath, sense the sanctity of life, that life is precious. Look out as you drive to church on Sabbath and sense the marvels of God's creation. There on Sabbath, come and rest in his love, rest in freedom from guilt. The Sabbath is a symbol of sanctification as well. That's the three angels' message. It's the symbol of sanctification. How so? If God created the world once and he could create that out of nothing, God can recreate your heart, right? And if you understand the Sabbath, you understand the new creation in heaven, go with a new appreciation of the three angels' message. Come back next year. We'll do the second and third angels' message if they let me teach. Let me pray for you. (laughs) Father in heaven, we are so incredibly excited about these messages that they're going to take a whole course and... We just introduced in a little bit today how these messages speak to this society. Lord, you've raised up this generation to proclaim your message of love and grace at end time. We're thankful, Lord, that we have life with a purpose, that we can go out and share your message with others. In Christ's name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.